On this prequel episode, we've got our babe fan reaction. We're learning about spy fiction and previewing the Bourne identity. Hello and welcome back to this film's lit podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. On this prequel episode, we've got a, quite a bit to cover, so let's get right into it with our first thing that we always do on every prequel episode, our patron shoutouts. We have two new patrons this week. Thank you for joining us. First up, at the $2 Newberry Medal winner, which grants you early access, like the night before, uh, and ad-free, which is still not an issue. <laughs> But if it ever becomes an issue. Uh, And that new patron is Gary French. Thank you, Gary, for signing on. And at the $5 level, we have a brand new patron, Colin Osborne. Colin, thanks you for joining us at the Hugo Award winning level, which grants you not only priority or early release and uh, ad free, but also bonus content, which includes uh, most recently Acrimony by Tyler Perry. And coming up later this week, Uh, We'll be releasing our uh, bonus episode for the month of April, which is uh, about all about pandemics, a Mm -hmm. pandemic palooza. We watched (laughs) Outbreak and Contagion, and we're going to record an episode discussing both of them, comparing them, contrasting them, and particularly comparing them and contrasting them to the reality of the last year and a half. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, Minor spoilers, if you haven't seen Contagion since it came out or ever at all, Watching it post-pandemic is a wild freaking experience. We made a whole movie starring Matt Damon 10 years ago and then forgot about it, apparently, (laughs) because then it all just happened. (laughs) It's wild. Basically, yeah. It's wild. (laughs) Uh, So if you want to hear us talk about that, if you support us for $5 a month or more, you get access to that. So thank you to our new patrons. And as always, we have our Academy Award winners who support us for $15 a month. They are Jeff Niederhofer, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young, Scratch, just Scratch, Selby, Selby, Shelby says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter. So happy to know that Babe is the one movie from my childhood that is still good. There's got to be more than one. I mean, there. I think there is a comment later addressing <laughs> yes. this. We'll discuss it, but we'll discuss it. it uh it definitely holds up. We'll say that much. Uh, and finally, our top patron of all time, Alina Deletkolova. Thank you all so very much, as always, for supporting us. And uh, yeah, in case you don't know what you get at the fifteen dollar level, you get all the other stuff that I mentioned, but you also get priority requests, which is what Babe was, mm-hmm. and it was also what. Uh, the born identity is so uh, we we move through those patron requests uh, quicker. They go high on the list, and we move through them. So uh, we'll talk about who requested the born identity here in a little bit. But that's what you get at the fifteen dollar level. All right, it's time to find out what everybody had to say about Babe. Yeah, well, you know that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So on Facebook, we had a total of three votes. Mm-hmm. All of them were for the movie. We did not get any feedback on Facebook this time, which is fine. Facebook's algorithm is we've all talked about it a lot of times, but I so I posted uh, a thing on Good, Better, Bad, Bad's Facebook page, yeah. and I usually get quite a bit of engagement on the Good, Better, Bad, Bad Facebook page. Posted something last week, it had one like for like hours. 
And I was like, I, what? How, what is happening? As a platform, I don't mind it for like my personal account, um, what, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. But as a platform for like a business account, I want to drop Facebook, drag, drop kick Facebook into the sun. Yeah, it's not great. Like if if I if we did not have people that I knew were following us only on Facebook, we would not have a Facebook page yeah. because it's such a nightmare to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. On Twitter, did a little better. We had 11 votes for the movie and one person who said that they could not decide Mm. between the book and the movie. We did get a couple of comments. Sir Vinny, the Reverend Master of Gender and Pronouns, (laughs) at Shady Shroomy, (laughs) said, I really like the movie. It's one of the only childhood movies I can look back on with no caveats and say it's exactly what I remember and just as good as I remember. The only other two like this are Lilo and Stitch and Atlantis. I have not seen either of those since I was a little kid, so I can't comment. I really like Lilo and Stitch. I would say that that one holds up. I've only seen Atlantis once. That came out in the time frame where I was like starting to feel a little bit old to go see Disney movies, yeah. you know. So I, I think I saw it once and it didn't make much of an impression yeah, on me. But I actually realizing now that I mistook it in my memory for uh, Road to El Dorado, so because <laughs> they're both about <laughs> lost cities or whatever. So Fair like, enough. yeah. And I also is Atlantis Disney or was it? Yeah, that was a, a Disney that one. Was it? Um, what's his name? I guess I know I'm now I'm also confusing it with Titan AE, which is Bluth. Oh so all of those run together in my head as like the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, yeah. Anyways, I, uh, you yeah. know, I, I think it is kind of tough with childhood movies because. I feel like especially lately, we've had this kind of like slew of like people revealing themselves. Mm, yes. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, and then you can maybe feel like a little bit awkward about like having this fondness for a particular thing right, absolutely. from your childhood. Yeah. Um, JK Rowling. Thank you. Yeah, specifically. And, and I mean, and that, that, and we've talked about it and we don't need to get into it, but that I still think the stories mostly hold up as we discussed on mm-hmm. our episodes about them, regardless of what you think of, and you should think bad things about the person. She's a bad person for a lot of reasons but um i I do think that the stories in general hold up uh and so i don't i don't necessarily feel ashamed about still liking harry potter or not even ashamed but like you know weird about it weird about it i i I, we've we've we've, again you've tweeted about this we've discussed the whole you know divorcing the work from the author thing but like i I think there's that issue and then there's just the issue of stuff not aging well right that's what i was in general yeah and I think, yeah, there's lots of stuff, especially um, more like sort of um, especially like 90s or really any time period mm-hmm. um, comedies. But yeah. any anything. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the humor has has not aged well. And and Babe is not that's not the case in Babe. There's nothing mm-hmm. that while we were at least nothing that stuck out to me. And I'm usually pretty yeah, I mean, we're there were things here and there, I think that were like, Oh, that's of its time. Like the annoying goose. Yes. Um, and, and even, but not in a problematic way. No, not in a problematic way. I think like the most problematic element of the story is 
is probably like and it's not even it's it's like maybe the sort of tropey nature of the the man who hates his wife like and that's not even a super strong but there is like a slight vibe of like the obnoxious nagging wife and the henpecked husband yeah and that's not the like but it's not like over it's not like a a running get it's just one of those things that's kind of there like it's kind of in there's like a, a slight hint of it in the background yeah um and then and then also we talked about on the main episode obviously the sort of ways that maybe the the political thematic stuff kind of breaks down with you. Mm-hmm. Like some of the lines themselves don't necessarily hold up depending on what lens you're looking at the right. movie through. Yeah. But again, that's a little more nebulous and up to interpretation than just like straight up, you know, obnoxious, like homophobia and stuff that a lot <laughs> of the movies of the time period had. Shelby Suderman at Shelby Suderman said, thank you for doing this one. I really enjoyed revisiting this movie and seeing which elements originally came from the book. I was not prepared to realize how much this film influenced my taste in books and movies growing up. I really enjoyed the book, but this movie is just on another level. I thought they did a really good job fleshing out the ideas in the novel. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We agree. Was this Shelby's recommendation or who was? No. No, This was um, from our name changing. The name changer. Yes, uh, this is from So Happy to Know the Babe is the one movie from my childhood that is still yes. good. Um, who I believe is the next Twitter, also the next Twitter comment. I believe you are correct, have, yes. Um, from at Nathan Bodnar, who said, I just loved Babe when I was a kid, when I watched it, but now it turns out I was a fan of relevant leftist <laughs> political commentary, and that feels really good. <laughs> I can only assume that the same is true about <laughs> Babe 2, Pig in the City. I cannot yeah. comment on I have that. Not I, seen I don't two, think I've ever seen Babe Two. I've heard it. I think I've heard it's good. Mm-hmm. That one is also not only written by George Miller, but is also directed by George Miller from yeah. my memory. Um, so we may have to do it at some point. I don't know if it's or what. It's probably not based on a book, though. No, I don't believe so. Okay, so then maybe we won't do it. But maybe a bonus episode <laughs> or something. Because I would actually like to watch it based on how much I enjoyed Babe. I would actually be interested in in watching the sequel and seeing kind of where they take. If the if that if the thematic messaging was not an accident, if it goes mm-hmm. somewhere else interesting in the sequel would be cool yeah, to see. Yeah, that could be interesting to to talk about. On Instagram, we had 13 votes for the movie and two for the book. Corinne Neva said, I haven't seen the movie or listened to the episode yet or read the book since I was nine, but sacrilege. Um, <laughs> was that on the one where you said the yeah, movie? Yeah, on the is one better, where or? I said the movie's okay. better. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate their uh their honesty. <laughs> and I, I believe the same listener commented on another post that this was like a childhood favorite yeah. book of theirs. Yeah. And the leap underscore 77 said the movie is just utterly cute and delightful, but some vegans like myself consider it an allegory for our place in society. James Cromwell said years later, it was rather bizarre. They were all playing and and filming with the pigs and then would turn around and eat bacon and ham at lunchtime. Understanding the cognitive dissonance turned him from a standard vegetarian to a still active vegan animal rights activist to this day. The end scene is oftentimes the social reaction we receive as if we don't belong and only exist because there are no other rules stating otherwise. Either way, this film and oddly the other pig movie that year Gordy are kind of hard watches because uh, because I love the animals, but I sometimes wish George Miller had gone a little harder with the friends not food sentiment that seems prevalent in the story. Mm-hmm. I can see that uh, if you know 
Um, that does seem like an, a kind of an obvious message. And it is there, which, the which, yeah. which we did talk about. It's there. Like, yeah, to but say, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's not definitely prevalent. not the main thing. It's it, and, it, and as we discussed in the episode, it's definitely more the movie is definitely more critical of factory farming as opposed mm-hmm. to like meat eating in general. Right. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm definitely empathetic to the idea. And I, I think it is also interesting that because I do agree that, you know, uh, especially in like America and a lot of the, the, the sort of developed Western world or whatever you want to call it, that vegans are, in fact, or at least large swaths of the sort of Western world. Um, uh, vegans are, you know, sort of <laughs> merely tolerated by a lot of people. Um, and I've said before that I think vegans are almost assuredly correct on everything. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of my moral failings, but, um, that I continue to eat meat sometimes, but it is, uh, I do think it is interesting that it is a very cultural, like specific thing. Cause they're in large, obviously large portions of the world, specifically regions in, in the East and stuff where veganism is, uh, or at least vegetarianism is mm-hmm. not, is, is, I think not only, um, not a minority of people, it's the majority of uh, mm-hmm. people I'm trying, I can't. There are specific cultures where <laughs> vegetarian and specific, because it was mainly because of specific religions mm-hmm. um, where vegetarianism is much more prominent. Anyways, it is an, it is an interesting topic. And I do yeah. think that the movie, I think it could have gone harder on that message. I think they probably, especially at the time, it's still a message that people aren't very like into on a widespread. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those things that when people ask, you know, what, what, beliefs and stuff to people do we have now as a society that you think 50 years 20 50 years from now we'll all be like wow how did we it's similar to like the homophobic nature of 50 years ago compared to today um i i i would agree that i think it's probably likely that meat eating would be one of those things but it is uh i think they probably realized that it wasn't gonna (laughs) go down well i think it's a tough call because especially here in america the reaction to that falls so hard into the you can't tell me what to do. Yes. Typical American response. Yeah, it very much the people who react most negatively to it are tend to be the more like freedom loving, like ideal, like, claiming to, you know, yeah, uh, cl- clinging to the idea of being freedom loving American, you know, red blooded Americans. But it's it's not just that population. It's it's even among sort oh, no, of more enlightened, yeah. quote unquote, for lack of a better phrase, um, pop, you know, groups within America. It's definitely still something that a lot of people just don't care about or and don't care to <laughs> discuss. Um, and I get it because it's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't like to discuss it because it, it once you start to think about it a little bit, it's not an easy topic and it will make yeah. you uncomfortable. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, I... How we're on this tangent? Yeah. Um, what do you mean but, how we're on it? Because this <laughs> comment was about meeting. But um, I, I do think that the thing that will work in the favor of that cultural shift is that it is getting easier to not eat meat. Yes. And absolutely. animal products alternatives are far more widely available and affordable far than they affordable. historically have yes. been. It was very hard to be a vegan in the '90s. I would feel like compared to now right like it's much I mean, yeah now, now i can go down to the grocery store and there's five different milk alternatives yeah for example yeah. for me to choose there's from. you go to the you go to walmart and you can get a fake burger that tastes pretty close 
to a real burger. Like a lot of them aren't great, <laughs> but there are some. But like the like Beyond Meats and those things, which we've we eat a lot of like fake meat, you know, alternative meat alternatives and stuff because because we do think it's probably the best, you know, a better idea. Ultimately, is probably the right moral thing to do. But um, and a lot of them, yeah, these days it's it's way easier. It's way more affordable than it it was. Yeah, t- even five or ten years ago. Um, and I think as it gets more and more easier and as lab grown meat becomes a thing that is not only like, cause it's already kind of a thing, but it's like incredibly expensive to the point of like, <laughs> nobody can get it. Um, once I think that gets to a point where I think 10 or 15 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if lab grown meat is in the same place that like, you know, the veggie crumble meat mm-hmm. alternatives are now. Uh, and when that happens, I think large portions of, yeah. uh, the world, you know, especially in, 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 uh, places where it's economically viable, um, will, will, you know, eat significantly less meat, which will be good for lots of reasons. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyways. All right. Where do we end up on the, the final numbers? So our winner this week was the movie with 27 votes to the books too. I think, the, wow. I think the book struggled a little bit this time for not being as well known yeah. as the movie, yeah. especially here in America. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. And it's, yeah, it's a beloved movie of people's childhood. Yeah. So, yeah, especially of like people our age, yeah. which is basically our demographic. Yeah. The people who listen to this show <laughs> tend to be people in the millennial age range, that kind of bracket gen, you know. Yeah. Who remember this film fondly from yeah. their childhood. Yep. All right. It is now time to learn a little bit about the spy fiction genre. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Sorry. So spy fiction is a genre. We're going to talk specifically about literature for most of this because mm-hmm. that is where it started. So this is a genre of literature involving espionage as an important context or as a plot device. At its core, a spy story is a tale of international intrigue and adventure. So spy fiction is thematically related to a couple of different other broader genres, those mainly being the adventure novel, the thriller, and the mystery slash detective genre. Now, some people would define spy fiction as a sub-genre of one or more of those genres. For me, I feel like we're getting a little bit into the weeds there. Um, but whether you call it a genre or a subgenre, you're not wrong. Yeah. So spy fiction emerged in the early 20th century, largely inspired by rivalries and intrigues between the major world powers of the time and the beginning establishment of what we would recognize as modern intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. So a few of the big names and titles to know from this kind of beginning time period are Kim by Rudyard Kipling. The Secret Agent and Under Western Eyes by Joseph Conrad, The 39 Steps by John Buchan, uh, The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Orczy, and The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. 
Now, Sir Spy Arthur... Spy thrillers' names are always <laughs> so great. They're always super great. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, while he does belong like more solidly in the detective genre... <laughs> does sometimes serve as a spy hunter for the British government Mm -hmm. so we can put him into, you know, something that helped bolster this genre as it was getting started. Now, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. We just have some highlights here. And this, and I don't know how much, I, I, you know, I don't know where you got, and I, it doesn't look like you go into anything else specific here, because I think specific, this, this, the spy fiction genre, we're talking specifically, as you mentioned, kind of from, of, um, this came into into vogue and, and this specific sort of definition of the genre has to do with like the rise of, of again, uh, intelligence agencies and right. stuff in the early 20th century. I would be interested to see if there was similar stories um, in non-Western cultures, because I'm thinking back to, to specifically, I'm thinking to um, stories that maybe would have come out from like um, feudalist, like Japan and stuff where, where mm-hmm. like there and I know ninja is not the right word, but like <laughs> people sneaking around and 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 doing covert missions and stuff was a thing that mm-hmm. we accept, you know, that it, that was happened in history. And I wonder if there are stories that we would find similar, sort of, you know, tro- like not maybe not tropes, but like mm-hmm. similar sort of markers for like what we call the spy fiction genre in the West. Again, starting in the early 20th century, to other cultures that had similar sort of. Um, dynamics within at the, at that at, at earlier time periods. I would be interested to, to see. I don't know, and I'm sure. But like yeah, I'm, I'm sure that yeah, I'm sure that that exists. Yeah. Um, again, these segments are yes. primers. Yes, I, I um, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, to put together an exhaustive globally no. historical <laughs> overview of. Everything that could potentially be part of, I mean, that would be a full-time job. I, I agree. I wasn't asking for that. I just thought it would be interesting to see. Yeah, I think it could be an interesting topic to look into and see mm-hmm. if there are roots further back. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah, there undoubtedly are. Yes. Yeah. So the term spy novel, specifically, mm-hmm. was defined by 1903's The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Um, in which two amateur spies uncover uncover a German plot to invade Britain. And that novel got super popular. That popularity kicked off a slew of imitators, which pushed the genre into the same space in the public consciousness as other popular but often disparaged genres like horror and crime fiction. Mm -hmm. So we now have something that is big enough to be popular, right, to be pulp, yeah, as it were, a penny dreadful. A penny. I was about to say the penny dreadful <laughs> when you said horror and crime fiction. Yeah, we just finished that show not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so popularity kind of lagged off a little bit, um, but then it received a boost around the Second World War, driven by the rise of communism and fascism, um, which kind of got writers' imaginations going. Mm-hmm. Continued to develop throughout the Cold War. Cold War, getting further inspiration from from real world. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It continued to develop throughout the Cold War, getting further inspiration from real world issues like rogue states, international crime organizations, global terrorist networks, maritime policy and technological sabotage and espionage. Um, So I think 
like one of the things that separates this genre from other similar genres, like something that's just a thriller, maybe, mm -hmm. is the idea of this being a global stage. Yeah. Right. Um, the idea of it being intrigue between various global powers it, that have far reach. I would say it has to almost has to be a for it to be a spy thriller. It almost ha I think it doesn't have to be. That's not true. But. Yeah, the global stage and almost uh, primarily tend to be between nations, like mm -hmm. uh, the conflicts between nations. It doesn't have to be. They can be like inner. inner right. You know, yeah. Conflicts like a, between nations or perhaps between a nation and like a global organization, organization of some sort, of like some a sort. terrorist organization, yes. et cetera. Yeah. Or or even even an organ like inter. There are some that I think could even fit like within but it's got to be within some sort of like governmental structure. Like there could mm -hmm. be a spy thriller set within just like, you know, warring fat, like oh, not warring factions, but you know, like set just within like the U S government, like somebody from the CIA spying on somebody else in the CIA, like whatever. I think that could be a thing, but in general, yeah, that, that like global stage, yeah. like you said, I think makes, yeah, it is something that yeah. sets the genre apart from, like I said, other similar genres. Yeah. yeah. So a handful of names and titles to know from this era of the genre's development are Above Suspicion by Helen McGinnis, uh, Graham Greene's The Ministry of Fear and The Quiet American. Atomsk. Atomsk. Adam. Atomsk is how I would say it. <laughs> Atomsk. A-T-O-M-S-K. Uh, by Paul Linebarger, Secret Ministry by Desmond Corey, East of Farewell by E. Howard Hunt, and of course, Ian Fleming's James Bond. Now, Never heard of him. Now synonymous with the genre, <laughs> whose first appearance was in 1952's Casino Royale. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, just a couple of highlights. Yep. So don't come for me if I didn't mention your fave. <laughs> Now, another interesting note here is that spy fiction in the USSR did not develop along the same lines as it did in the Western world. Now, while Western fiction typically portrayed spies as being heroes fighting for their respective countries, right? They're the good guys. Mm -hmm. The subject of espionage was treated in the Soviet Union as stories of villainous foreign spies hmm. come to threaten the USSR. So they're the villains. Interesting. Consequently, there were no like Bond style spy novels featuring Soviet heroes until 1963's The Zakoff Mission by who Andre Juliashki. Gulyashki. Yeah. And this about face was largely bolstered by an effort by the KGB <laughs> to improve ordinary citizens' concept of the Czechisti or the secret police. Which is a continuing uh trend uh in modern uh mm -hmm. in modern fiction. I don't know if you're gonna talk about that later or not i haven't read your notes but like that's still at least in america for sure and around the world um I, huge amounts of um, Pro propaganda yes of yeah. government money is is dumped into projects like marvel movies and, yeah. and um uh spy like the the whole jack ryan series 
um, with uh, Jim from the office. I don't have that specifically in my notes, but yeah, you're yeah, right. Like they, they, the government and uh, is is way into. It's one of the like it's one of the reasons that like it you know even when even when Marvel movies get their most subversive, the 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 military <laughs> and government agencies tend to still be the good guys, and mm-hmm. if they're not, they're a made up agency or like it you know it's it's uh in in like uh winter soldier like it's 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 shield and they're infiltrated by hydro it's like right. so like it's, yeah. it's not like the army that is evil in in a marvel movie it's because yeah a big part of that is because the infrastructure um the military industrial uh sort of infrastructure in america dumps money into those movies and goes make us look good and they're like sure we'll we'll do that so continuing through the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st the genre was bolstered by serialized spy fiction, introducing popular characters who appeared across multiple novels. For example, as you mentioned, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan and, of course, Robert Ludlum's Jason Bourne. The, now, the genre also continues to draw inspiration from real world events such as the conflict between Israel and Palestine, uh, 9-11, Middle Eastern political conflicts in general have been a huge like source of inspiration for this genre, especially post since the 90s. Yes, like since, absolutely. Yeah, the conflicts in the Middle East have become, uh, you know, sort of the, taken over the global stage in terms of. Like, yeah, and especially like with the the end of the Cold War, yeah. Cold God, with the end of the Cold War and that kind of decline mm-hmm. of the, the the overt conflict the overt, between the yeah. U.S. and Russia, the overt subvert <laughs> con- like yeah, it's funny calling the Cold War Cold War an overt conflict, yeah, the overt yes. subvert <laughs> conflict. Um, but yeah, we tend to focus much more now on the like Middle Eastern yeah. stage. Yeah, um, and as you mentioned, there is that element of propaganda Propaganda, yeah and these stories because if you do look previous to like the 90s or so you know when the cold war was still all the way up until like i said the early 90s or so like the jack ryan movies there's Mm -hmm. no shortage of those like the er, some of the earlier ones are about russia are about con like nukes and you know like that they're they're about that the cold war conflict and stuff like that um and then there, there are other ones that have to do with like um uh, the conflicts in like Eastern Europe and stuff like post, uh, I don't know the right word for it, but like the, uh, after the, the USSR dissolved and then mm-hmm. like the conflicts within each of those countries around like, uh, this is not a spy thriller necessarily, but the um, Behind Enemy Lines, uh, the Owen Wilson movie is about like the, the our, it's not the Armenian genocide, but it's about a genocide in one of those Eastern European countries and, and like I think Russia's role in it and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know. So a lot of that stuff, but then yeah, obviously post nine post nineteen ninety uh, and and the or the Gulf War, and then even uh, even more so post nine eleven, yeah. And I think too, even if you look further back at the genre, like during the Second World War, post the Second World War, during the Cold War, it's not not propaganda in <laughs> yeah. the West because. Because there is this trend yes. of portraying like spies are the heroes, yeah. right? They're the good guys. Yep. So it's it's not not propaganda, no. but it's not propaganda like current spy fiction is propaganda. At, at least from what I, my understanding is that it's not quite in the same way where it's it. it I, I don't believe it was. I could be wrong about this. I'd be interested to hear if I'm sure there are people out there who know a lot more about like early spy fiction and stuff. 
uh, or I say early, but you know, like spy fiction of the '60s, '70s, '80s, that, mm-hmm. that genre, that period. Um, I would imagine that I would imagine that it's not quite as governmentally endorsed because the government was too busy like fucking up other countries, like. <laughs> As if we're not busy doing that We now. still are doing that, but I feel like it was a little bit, I don't know. I have a whole note about <laughs> our our entanglements in in, in other nations uh, in my movie notes, which we'll talk about. But. All right. Very excited. So modern spy fiction has two distinct branches. One is stories that focus on technology and blend the genre with science fiction. Sometimes this is called spy-fi. Spy-fi. And the other branch is stories that employ bleak realism. Now, another less common subgenre of spy fiction is actually spy comedy, Mm -hmm. which is usually a parody of the cliches and like the campier elements that can be characteristic to the genre itself. Which is funny because James Bond has fluctuated between all of those genres over its period. It has (laughs) gone from spy fi, like, you know, where it's all about the gadgets and gizmos and stuff, to at times being straight up seemingly like parody mm-hmm. of almost James Bond movies at times like Moonraker and stuff. I don't know if they are parody. They're probably not, but they f- might as well be all the way to the more modern, uh, uh, the Daniel Craig ones, which are still there. They have their like gadgetry spy fi yeah. stuff, but they're also a more grounded, like gritty. sort of grim, like, yeah. yeah, gritty version of the, of the, of the James Bond genre. Now, obviously, this genre is not limited to literature, and it has been crossing over into other types of entertainment practically since its inception, um, including theater, video games, tabletop games, and especially television and film. Film probably being the most notable, because as soon as we had the capability to make spy movies, we started really cranking them out. Yep. Which brings us to The Born Identity. All right, let's go ahead and learn a little bit about The Born Identity, the book. He has the skills you, stop right there. of a dangerous man. I need to know what went wrong. I think he snapped. But he has no memory. We don't take care of this. We will both burn. It trained, conditioned, built to disappear. I'll give you $10,000 to drive me to Paris. I get the money, and I don't get hurt. That's a deal. Now, the government's top agent. I can't remember anything that happened before two weeks ago. Abijah? Yes. Is about to become their number one target. The Born Identity is a 1980s spy fiction thriller written by Robert Ludlum. It is the first novel of the original Born trilogy, which also includes The Born Supremacy and The Born Ultimatum. So, supposedly... According to an interview that Ludlum gave, the idea behind the Bourne trilogy became about after he had a bout of temporary amnesia. After his first book, The Scarlatti Inheritance, was published, he supposedly could not remember 12 hours of his life. That event, combined with reading thrilling real-life spy stories, inspired him to create this character of Jason Bourne and get this trilogy started. On the subject of Jason Bourne's name, 
Some have speculated that the name was most likely inspired by Anselborn, a famous 19th century psychology case due to the experience of probable disassociative fugue. Mm. Dissociative. Disso- dissociative. Yeah. I never said, I never put No, it look, it's the word that when you look at it, it looks like there could, because you associate, it looks like, it feels like there should be an A in there, but there's not. Dissociative <laughs> Fugue, which has been described as a state in which an individual has lost their identity, Mm -hmm. which is basically what happens in the book. I mentioned earlier that this novel is the first in a trilogy. All three of those were written by Robert Ludlum. After Ludlum's death, author Eric Van Lustbader. What a name. I know. (laughs) That guy. (laughs) Holy cow, he lucked out. He went into the wrong genre, but whatever. <laughs> um, Eric Eric Van Lustbader, um, he... Uh, I mean, he, why would you not be writing romantic <laughs> fiction with a name like Aaron Von Lustbader? <laughs> Anyways. I mean, are thrillers not just the male romance genre? We won't get If he was it. writing Bond movies, well, yeah. If he was writing Bond books, I'd say sure. Uh, it, I, to be fair, I've never read a Bond book, but based on the movies, <laughs> I'm assuming. Uh, but the Bourne are a little different, for at least the movies. Again, I've never read the book. So um, so he picked up where, Redlum, where Ludlum left off and continued the story of Jason Bourne writing The Bourne Legacy, The Bourne Betrayal, The Bourne Sanction, The Bourne Deception, The Bourne Objective, The Bourne Dominion, The Bourne Imperative, The Bourne Retribution, the Born Ascendancy, The Born Enigma, and The Born Initiative. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> it's too much. I mean, I get it. It's the same thing as like James Bond, but still just. It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. It it's, is a, a lot. it's a lot to ask well, of one really, character. It's really interesting to me, too. I mean, I guess I would be interested to see. I, I've seen, and we'll get into it when we talk about the movies here in a minute. I've, I've seen the first two, if not first three, Bourne movies, and I remember nothing about them other than the, the whole the premise I of the first. There one. were only three. There, we'll talk about it. There's oh, okay. more than that. Um, but um, the only thing I remember is basically the rough premise of the first one, which is he's Jason Bourne doesn't remember who he is, and yeah. the government's trying to get him. Like th- you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's the premise that I know. Other than that, I don't remember anything. And to me, I'm really interested. I'd be really interested to see what the story would become on book number nine, because the interesting thing is he's a person who doesn't remember who he is, and mm-hmm. and his, his the government agency he worked for previously is trying to murder him, you know, trying to get him or whatever. Once you're past that, what it just turns into a normal spy thriller, right? Like, which I mean, you fine, you can do that. But I feel like you've lost your hook. I don't know. Like, maybe, I mean, I guess you can just continue to remember things. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, and again, I remember nothing from the movies. I'm sure some of that is addressed. But it is. I would be interested to see what book book number twenty two in the Born, <laughs> the, the Born uh, series series. That's the word I was looking for. I was trying to come up with whatever the Greek or Latin word for uh, 20 was, and I couldn't. Oh, jeez. Oh, the uh, Born Ventology. (laughs) There you go. I like it. Whenever I see a property that has just like a slew of different. Anyways, sorry. (laughs) A slew of different, um, different things in it, like different books or different movies. Yeah. For some reason, I always think of The Land Before Time. Oh yeah, because they just like kept cranking out 
straight to VHS. Anyway, aside from the Matt Damon films, this novel has also been adapted as a 1988 television movie starring Richard Chamberlain and Jacqueline Smith. The story was also partially adapted in the 1989 Tamil language film Vetri Visa, starring Kamal Hassan. Interesting. I'm glad you had that note because I didn't put that in mind, but I was going to mention it. So, good job. <laughs> Upon the novel's release, Kirkus Review... Kirk is famously known for loving genre fiction. Kirk's review called it another dizzily preposterous Ludlum comic strip full of hyperventilating characters, pell-mell intrigue, and barbarous prose. Good lord. And shamelessly dumb entertainment. That every critic's wet dream writing sentences (laughs) like that just laying into it. Dizzily preposterous. That might be my favorite part. Somebody needs to come up with a term for critical language. Like, I'm sure there is, but like, <laughs> there needs to be a, a word or a term or like a f- whatever for that kind of critic talk where it's like pompous, pompous uh, criticism that is like overly ver- verbose and like overly mean, but like doing it in a in a in a smarty pants way so it like doesn't come across as me like i don't know there's got to be a word for that there probably is and i don't know what it is but for that kind of writing i feel like there should be in 2008 peter cannon of publishers weekly named the born identity among the best spy novels of all time after john lecare's the spy who came in from the cold so kirkus review didn't like it not a fan other people felt differently. There you go. Alrighty then, let's go ahead now and find out about The Born Identity, the film. What's in Paris? It's a name, Jason Bourne. Let's see if the Paris police can find him for us. And the only way he can survive. Talk a lot. Is to find out who he is. I guess you're not home. Monsieur Bourne. I don't recognize any of this. Before they find out. Get the address. I think I got it. Enhance. Where he is. The second film, as you mentioned, because there is a 1988 made-for-TV movie. But the one we're discussing is the 2002 film directed by Doug Lyman, also known as the director of Edge of Tomorrow, Jumper, Swingers, and most recently, Chaos Walking, that movie that nobody saw. That tra- it's got Daisy Ridley and uh, Tom. Oh, uh, uh, Spider Man. <laughs> that trailer that we keep seeing, and you were like, nobody wants this movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and there's a whole backstory about this movie. It, it's been in production for like literally like six years, and kept nice. getting pushed back and back and back, and re-edited and reshot. And uh, yeah, anyways. Uh, but yeah, that Doug Lyman uh, directed it. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is supposedly a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is written by Tony Gilroy, uh, also known for Rogue One, Armageddon, The Devil's Advocate, and basically every uh, Bourne movie, mm. except for like one of them, I think. Uh, the film stars Matt Damon, Franca Potente, uh, or Pot- I don't know how to say her last name. Potente feels right in yeah. my soul. <laughs> uh, Chris Cooper, Clive Owen, Brian Cox, um, Adewal, oh no, shoot, <laughs> I wrote down a pronunciation for yeah, this. Yeah, you did, it's right there. Yeah, I know. 
Adewale, Adewale Akinoye Agbaje, I believe is how you say his name, uh, and Julia Stiles. The film is 83% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, has a 68% on Metacritic, and a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb. It made $214 million against a budget of $60 million, which is why there are now, I think, five of these movies. As you mentioned earlier, you thought there were only three. I really thought there were only three. <laughs> the five of the films are The Born Identity, The Born Supremacy, The Born Ultimatum, which follows the, yeah, the, the original ones you trilogy, mentioned. Yeah. Uh, the Born Legacy, which I believe also was maybe one of the ones you... I can't remember now. Uh, doesn't... No, it doesn't look like it is up there. Uh, no, it is. It is. Yeah, that's one of the uh, Eric Van, Van Lustbader ones. Uh, it looked like maybe his first one is The Born Legacy, uh, which that film does not star Matt Damon. It stars uh, Jeremy Renner. Does he still play Born? Uh, no, he plays a different character, oh. but it's. I believe that's why it's called The Born Legacy. It's. I think he's just a different guy where a similar thing. Oh, I, okay. I've never seen that one. Uh, and then finally, most recently, I believe in 2016 or 2017, uh, Jason Bourne, which is where Matt Damon returned to the film series and he gets his own like he is the title of the movie yes Yes. and i i've never seen that one so i don't know what the plot of that i think i have seen the first three and i remember zero about them like i said (laughs) uh doug lyman read the novel uh, in high school and he'd been a fan ever since he was finishing up swingers which i believe matt damon is in i'm pretty sure uh and he decided to start working on an adaptation uh of the born identity uh this is what i thought was really interesting or one of the things i thought was really interesting So Doug Lyman's father, Arthur Lyman, was involved, apparently, in investigating the Iran-Contra affair. And much of Alexander Conklin's character, who is played by uh, Chris Cooper in the movie, and I believe he's like the government dude. Mm -hmm. like He's like the guy in charge of the the program or whatever who's like hunting him. I I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, But much of that character uh, was based on Lyman's father's recollection of Oliver North. Oliver North is a real person, or was. I don't know if he's alive still. Hopefully not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oliver North was a participant in the Iran-Contra affair in which he was involved in selling, if you don't know what the Iran-Contra affair is, as where uh, the U.S. government sold, uh, again, real basic (laughs) top-level view of what the Iran-Contra affair was. Um, uh, The U.S. government, uh, including Oliver North, he was involved in this, sold weapons to Iran, and then funneled the profits from selling those weapons to Iran uh, to the Contras, which is why it's called the Iran-Contra Affair, the Contras in Nicaragua, Nicaragua, who were a right-wing rebel group that the U.S. was backing and funding in opposition to the Marxist Sandinista Junta of National Reconstruction Government in Nicaragua, which was a government that had recently overthrown the, which was a leftist government that had recently overthrown the, um, like the, the, basically the monarch it's not mm-hmm. a monarchy but they had it but essentially the monarchy that had ruled in nicaragua for so decades they had overthrown like the sitting government the, uh, yeah the sitting government but not a democratic government right. like a, a a yeah an autocracy essentially and i'm sure i'm getting a lot of details wrong here this is just i did a very brief googling to remind myself what the iran contra affair was and so yeah uh blah 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 blah, blah. Uh, so yeah, it's another <laughs> another in the long line of the U.S. fucking with less of, less leftist governments in developing nations. And Lyman did admit that he jettisoned much of the content of the novel beyond the uh, central premise in order to modernize the material and conform it to his own beliefs regarding uh, the United States foreign policy. Um, which again, his father was, from what it sounded like, involved in sort of maybe potentially prosecuting or whatever mm-hmm. um, the 
government, the people within the Reagan administration who were responsible for the whole Iran Contra, Iran Contra affair. Um, and then again, and thus the backing of right wing <laughs> rebel groups trying to overthrow uh, leftist governments in South America because they saw it as a threat to the global uh, capitalist system that we are currently uh, currently still stuck in. Yeah, boy, the the eighties and and even to today, the our history in South America is real wild stuff. If you ever do any reading about it, it's it's something. I mean, everywhere, not just South America, but specifically, we've done a lot of, like, yeah. fucking with socialists in South America in our time as a nation. Uh, so, this is cool. Brad Pitt was approached to play the role of Jason Bourne, but he turned it down to star in Spy Game, which I've never seen. I've never heard of that. I had heard of it, but I don't know anything about it, and I guarantee it's not as successful as the Bourne series was. <laughs> not that Brad Pitt needed the money or anything, but... Um, other actors that were approached to play Jason Bourne included, and again, as always, some of these make sense to me and some of them don't. Russell Crowe, I can see that one. That kind of works. I get it. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I get it in the sense of like he's an action star, yeah. but not for this role to me. Again, maybe it's because I'm blinded by by what... I, having seen Matt Damon in this role, Matt Damon is obviously very much not Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I guess the odd thing to me is that, and I, I don't know how the movie compares to the book yet, but in the book, Bourne is supposed to be like very nondescript yeah. and like kind of neutral. And Arnold Schwarzenegger no. is not yeah. only huge, he has such... An accent? Yeah, an accent and, and just a look like, yeah. Like and Matt Damon yeah. is fairly nondescript. He's like, an everyman. He's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have heard that the character in the book is significantly older than, I don't I don't know oh. if that's, but at least he's supposed to be like a, a somewhat older than like Matt Damon is in the movie. Probably, but, yeah. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Tom Cruise makes sense. Again, he's a little bit more of an everyman kind of. But, he's, but do you want a guy who's already famous for no. playing a different? Yes, yeah, you don't need. You don't want Ethan Hunt to yeah. be Jason Bourne. Yeah. It's a no. little yeah. Uh, and Sylvester Stallone, which again is falls more like, to me into the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, too too unique. <laughs> yeah, uh, before they finally landed on Damon, uh, Matt Damon had never played such a physically demanding role. Mostly playing, you know, uh, this is like he's like the. The smart Boston frat yeah. guy is like <laughs> what he did before this. Uh, but he insisted on uh, doing many of the stunts himself, a la Tom Cruise. He trained for three months with the film stunt coordinator, Nick Powell. And one of the major stunts that he does in the movie that is him doing it is he's I think it's towards the end of the film. He climbs uh, either up or down like 30 or 40 feet of this building. And apparently he did that himself. And he said it was the most grueling thing that I've ever had to do. Hmm. Uh, so this is interesting. There's a lot of tension apparently on set uh, and and during the filming uh, of the Born Identity between Doug Lyman and the studio. Executives were super unhappy with the film's pacing and the emphasis on small scale action sequences and the general relationship between themselves and Lyman. They didn't like working with them, uh, and because he, he was suspicious of like their involvement, he didn't want them messing with I his mean, film. Same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I thought it was interesting. A particular point of contention was in regards to the original, uh, um, what's his name, Tony Gilroy script, where there were scenes that are set in the farmhouse at the end of the film. Uh, Lyman and Matt Damon apparently were were on the same side in this. They like 
It was them versus the studio from what it sounds like. But they fought super hard to keep those scenes in the film after they were cut by the studio uh, in a rewrite. Um, And then they argued that those scenes were like super important, even though they were kind of low key. They're super integral to the audience understanding who Bourne is and and under and understanding the film's central themes, which I haven't seen this movie since it came out. And I didn't know there were themes, so I'll be interested because <laughs> I was a dumb, like, 14-year-old when I saw this movie, and I was like, I like when Matt Damon punched people. Um, <laughs> so I, I'll be interested to see uh, thematically what this movie's got going for it. Uh, da, da, da. So there's a very famous car chase in this movie, uh, often compared to, like, The French Connection or uh, The Sting. I think it's The Sting, whatever. It's, it's one of the more famous car chase scenes. Um, uh, turns out that that car chase sequence was primarily not filmed uh, by um, Doug Lyman. It mm-hmm. was filmed by the second unit director, Alexander Witt, uh, who had already worked on a lot of stuff, including, like, Speed, Speed 2, Gladiator at this time. But he went on to work on films like American Gangster, X-Men First Class, Skyfall, and Avengers Infinity War, all as a second unit uh, DP or director, which second unit does uh, often does a lot of like the action-y stuff, mm-hmm. whereas the first unit will do more of like the character-focused stuff so that, that the director, the, the whoever the, you know, the, the, the build top name director can spend more time working with actual the actual actors and stuff and getting working with their performances. Whereas a lot of the actiony stuff will be handed off to mm-hmm. a second unit director who maybe f- specializes in action and doesn't have to work as closely with like performances and stuff like that. So eventually the finished fi- footage that they filmed all over Paris of this car chase scene was edited together uh, to create the illusion of a journey that actually made sense. Uh, turns out Lyman confessed that quote, anyone who really knows Paris will find it completely illogical. Since few of the locations used in the car chase actually connect to each other. <laughs> so many places you'll see in the movie, if you know Paris, it's like, well, that's nowhere near. <laughs> like, they'll drive around a corner and you'll be like, wait a second. <laughs> they just teleported across Paris. Yeah. yeah. Which happens in lots of movies. Yeah. Not, not just yeah. this. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Um, so Doug Lyman did a lot of the camera work himself, according to the research I did, um, which is not common for the director to, like, grab the camera and operate it himself. Uh, b- but also... For the camera operator that uh, that was working on the film, he apparently didn't tell he didn't let the camera op watch the rehearsals because he wanted the camera to be late getting to people delivering their lines to add an edge to the film so that it felt and and it does give it from my memory. Um, this is a very shaky cam kind oh, of oh, movie. Good. Yeah. <laughs> And part of that is it gives it they're going for a more documentary style feel mm-hmm. and having your your camera op getting sort of realizing, you know, not not knowing who's going to talk when and spinning the camera around and getting the people's mouths late and stuff feels much more like a documentary yeah. than everything being like rehearsed and planned out and that sort of thing. So. Uh, so there's a red bag, a famous red bag that Jason Bourne has in the consulate in this film, uh, and that is now owned by Adam Savage of the Mythbusters. Uh, if you watch his, go to his YouTube channel, uh, there's a, several videos where he talks about purchasing this prop and going through it, and you can see all the little details of it and stuff. This is interesting, especially for our purposes. Uh, at Doug Lyman's instruction, Tony Gilroy, the screenwriter, didn't read any of the Bourne identity. Oh, <laughs> Instead... That's... He worked solely from that an outline. He worked solely from an outline prepared by Doug Lyman. 
So Wyman read it, wrote up an outline, and said, use this, don't read the book. Oh, boy. Okay. So, yep, it's okay. going to be a mess. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Just thought I'd warn cool. you ahead of time. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Uh, and finally, I love getting in my Roger Ebert uh, reviews because they're always so interesting. He gave this film three out of four stars and praised it for absorbing the uh, absorbing the viewer in its quote spycraft and quote Damon's ability to be focused and sincere sincere, concluding that the film was quote unnecessary but not unskilled, <laughs> which is what a line. <laughs> Imagine calling a film unnecessary. like. I mean, it's nicer than dizzily preposterous. <laughs> this is true. It's just such an interesting choice of words. I would love, really like to see the full review to see like contextually where that, like yeah. you know what I mean? Because without with just those those few words, unnecessary but not unskilled. I feel like there's maybe some words before that that the, make that make them a little shed more. a little light onto the context. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, That's a great poll quote, though. Yeah. Unnecessary, but not unskilled. I would splash that right on my movie poster. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's true. It's r- true in the sense of like a lot of movies aren't necessary, but like, fair whatever. enough. I don't know. Doug Lyman thought he had a point of view and was doing like had some thematic, <laughs> you know, uh, some thematically relevant stuff to say. Apparently, Roger Ebert did not agree, or at least it seems like it. All right, uh, that's all I had. So where can you watch it? As always, check your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, go check with them. You can stream the film with a subscription on Sling or USA. So I assume if you have cable or any of those providers, you might be able to find it on yeah, maybe, on, maybe demand on demand or something maybe. with you through USA or record it through USA. Um, or you can rent it for four bucks on Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Fandango, Now, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, AMC Theaters on Demand, etc. Pretty much probably any place that has rental streaming rental stuff. Have you seen this movie? No. Cool. I'm very excited. The thing that I always think of when I think about the Bourne movies, not having seen any of them, do you remember? I'm about to date myself on the internet here. Way back, I want to say I watched this early college, so I'm going to put this somewhere between 2008 and 2010. There was a viral video that was a parody movie trailer of the Bourne movies, but it was about Where's Waldo. That sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm not, it doesn't, I'm not like, yes, I know what that is, but it does sound And it familiar. lives in my brain rent free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll share it yeah, on our social media. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, I, I that does re- like it sounds. If I can find familiar. it, I don't even know if it exists anymore. I'm sure it's somewhere. It sounds familiar, but I I can't. Yeah, I don't. I nothing's jumping in my mind. Like, oh yeah, I've definitely seen that. Um, yeah, I'm excited to watch it again because I I haven't seen this since again. Probably since it came out. Maybe I've seen it once after that, like in college or something. But it's mm. been in over ten years, if not longer. Um, Probably yeah, closer this, to it's not a genre that I would usually go in for on my own, so yeah. I am excited to partake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and from my memory, it is it is it's a it's a good one. At least the first one um, I remember enjoying, um, and it's 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 a fun action packed thrill ride. And again, I will be really interested this time to see thematically if there's much going on, mm-hmm. which it sounds like Doug Lyman wanted there to be. So we'll see if we get that from it. Alrighty then, uh, that's in one week's time we'll be talking about The Born Identity, and until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and, and keep, keep being awesome. awesome.